Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, where the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, a novel that'll turn you upside down. Okay, here's an existential dilemma. Suppose you cannot remember key moments from your past, or worse yet, what if key memories from your past are suddenly called into question or proven simply to be false? Who are you? Who is anybody in the absence of reliable memory? These questions are at the heart of a new novel called The Canvas by Benjamin Stein. It's a gripping book that has at its core the long shadow of a 15-year-old literary scandal. That scandal involved a man named Benjamin Wilkomirski, who, in the 1990s, wrote a dramatic Holocaust memoir about his concentration camp childhood. At first, the book was celebrated. Then it was deplored when Wilkomirski was exposed as a fraud. In Stein's novel, In the Canvas, we follow two men who are intimately connected to a Wilkomirski-like story. One man offers the Wilkomirski figure emotional support. The other man brings about his downfall. Their stories are told separately, more on that in a minute, but they do eventually collide. There's one more twist to all of this, and that's the fact that Benjamin Stein himself has, you could argue, shifted his identity along the path of life. He was raised in a non-religious family in East Germany, and then in his teens he decided to become an observant Jew, which was quite a radical move for a young person in the GDR. Along the way, he also changed his name. Well, today we're pleased to have Benjamin Stein in the studio to talk about his novel, which is just out in English. With Benjamin Stein, we've got his English translator, Brian Zumhagen, whose name I love saying. Brian Zumhagen is perhaps best known as the weekend news anchor for WMYC Public Radio right here in New York City. Benjamin, Brian, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks so much for having us. So before we get into plot twists and narrative themes and all that, we should tell listeners about one very basic aspect of this novel, and that's that it's actually two novels or two novellas. You start from one end, and you've got the story of a man named Jan Weschler, a writer and publisher based in Munich, and he's also an observant Jew who says he grew up in East Berlin. But as we quickly discover in Jan's case, much of what he tells us about himself is suspect. If you flip the book over, you get a completely different story, and that's about a man named Amnon Zichroni. Zichroni's story starts when he's 15. He's growing up in a Haredi, ultra-Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem, and he gets into trouble for basically exhibiting an improper interest in secular literature. His family sends him off to live in Switzerland with a close friend. Later, he moves to the United States to complete his Jewish education, and he ultimately becomes a psychotherapist, though he remains a religious uh, individual. Those are the ground rules of this book. (laughs) So, Benjamin, why did you write this book this way as two novellas back-to-back which collide in the center? Well, I wanted to force the reader to make a decision before he starts to read. There are at least four ways for the reader. You can read one story and then the other, or you start with the other story and then the one. You can also change from chapter to chapter which makes up for another two uh, ways to read the book. Those four ways you know, were constructed by the author. Later I found out that uh, many readers find their own ways through um, this book. Okay, um, I'm not responsible for this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, whatever you, decision you make, whether you start with Wexler's story or Zichoni's story, you would read a different book. Because you are presented with the very subjective views of the two narrators in a different order. 
So with this decision, you are in the middle of the topic of the book. How real is reality, especially when you remember it? And so the, f the outer shell of the book is actually part of the whole idea, of the whole topic that I'm covering there. So then when you conceived of this book, in the creative process itself, did you make a decision uh, to begin with one narrative over the other? And how? How did you make that decision? Well, of course, you have to start somewhere. But uh, to answer the question, no, it is one novel. And uh, the way it is constructed is uh, part of the of the idea. So now it was clear from the very beginning that there are two narrators. It was clear what was their part in the literary scandal that uh, plays a major role in the, the story. And of course, a book like this must be constructed. You, uh, there are eleven chapters uh, in each of the you know two stories. And uh, you have to plan this beforehand. When I wrote, I had another problem then because uh, I always write in the first person. So you have to find the voice of the narrator. So it was difficult for me to change from chapter to chapter. So I decided to um, write Zichoni, the the first hundred pages, which is you know half of a story, then the first half of Wexler, then the second half of Sihoni and the second half of Wexler. But it was only to immerse myself into the voice of the narrator, not because there would be, you know, a, a real beginning or ending or, uh, you know, more important uh, voice over the other. And uh, it was actually a lot of fun writing this book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as we mentioned, the two novels do come together, and the deus ex machina who brings them together is this Vilkomirsky-like character who you call in the book Minsky. We don't spend a lot of time with this fellow Minsky. He appears really toward the end of Zichroni's story. But we do spend enough time with him to see him, I thought, as a pretty sympathetic guy. I think so. <laughs> I found I'm not him... so sure about mm. it, actually. <laughs> well, I found him somewhat sympathetic, although he turns out to have perpetrated a fraud. And yet there is something, maybe it's that he is a luthier, <laughs> makes mm. violins that I found endearing. Uh. But <laughs> I wonder, what is it about the Vilkomirsky story that most interested you? Okay, when, when I asked, do you think really is sympathetic? Uh, for sure, it's an interesting person. Um, what I find a little bit disturbing... Uh, when it comes to Minsky is that for sure he is not a healthy guy. There's something definitely wrong uh, with him. And yeah, this is uh, a little bit of a barrier to sympathy, <laughs> I would say. Um, what was the question, actually? Well, what, what, <laughs> what drew you to him? I'm curious what about his story, uh, either Minsky or you know, the figure mm. on whom he's based, Wilkomirsky, what is it that compelled you? I was, in a way, involved in this scandal in the, you know, late 90s. Because my first novel uh, in Germany appeared in 1995, and the very same season that Wilkomirsky's book was published. And as Wexler describes on the canvas, we had a performance together at the Leipzig Book Fair. That's where I met him. 
And I liked him from uh, from the beginning. He um, is a very creative person. Um, and we had we had a very nice conversation before we went on the on the stage. And then I witnessed this Holocaust memoir performance that took place. Like he was never reading himself uh, from the book, but uh, an actor had to read from it. He just uh, played the clarinet, um, and it was a very dramatic performance. So I thought, okay, this is not my style of literature, but I like the guy. So we exchanged books and uh, decided I would go and see him at his house in uh, in Switzerland, which I did uh, some months later. And uh, it was, we didn't even talk about the book because there were so many interesting things to talk about besides that. Because he, uh, um, he in fact builds clarinets, not violins, like Minsky in the uh, in the book, and um, because he is so creative, like he's uh, manufacturing uh, uh, jewelry from natural stones and many things. So it was a very very nice visit. And some years later, we lost contact. Then, um, when I read in the newspaper that. This journalist discovered the book as a fraud. I even didn't care about whether it was, you know, a true story or not, uh, a willful fraud or some psychological illness or whatever. I just knew this guy I met, his identity would be destroyed because he relied on this memory. But I didn't write a letter, I didn't call him, and I was really ashamed of this, you know, not giving, even a, if it was a remote friend, uh, the support in this time of, of real, uh, you know, depression and, uh, and, and outside pressure. So I think that was the very reason when I uh, uh, decided to, to write a book about identity and memory. I actually had at least four proper stories, you know, on, on, on my desk that could have been used for this topic. And the Wilkomiski case was one of them. But it didn't take a long time that I knew I have to write about this case in order to um, do a little bit of a tikkun, like uh, to make up for what I didn't do in the very moment... Um, he needed it. It, it is not uh, that I say everything was right, was he have done, or, or that I say he was innocent, or whatever. I, I don't know. The very point is that somebody lost his identity from one day to the other, and this is a very terrible thing. And I actually wanted to show how important our memories are and uh, how unreliable our memories are. This is, you know, just an extreme case of what happens to all of us in, the, in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of that stuff about your personal connection to that. I didn't know that. No. So it's very interesting. Anyway. <laughs> One thing that surprised me about this book is how Jewish it is. There is real uh, 
erudition and minutia, especially in the Zichronic part, in Amnon Zichroni's story, we learn about all kinds of Talmudic debates, about all the meanings that are attached, for instance, to the length and style of tzitzit, about various Jewish mystical teachings and so forth. Why delve into all of that in a novel? Were you concerned at all that it would be uh, somewhat distracting to a reader or alienating to a non-Jewish reader in particular? I actually didn't think that it would alienate um, any reader. Um, The book is about identity and Jewish identity in Europe today in the third generation after uh, after the Holocaust, is, of course, still tied to it, but in a totally different way than it was for the first generation, second generation um, um, after the war. And I wanted to show the, the, the problems of Jewish identity, you know, between Israel, Switzerland, Germany, and the States, what are, you know, uh, four different places where the Jews have different problems with their identity, but they have one in common. They have problems with their identity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It it seems to be a a predominantly Jewish problem. But in in including, why is it important to include so many details about uh, the everyday uh, minutia of Jewish ritual? Was this an effort in some way to document uh, kind of Jewish life on a day-to-day level or... What was the purpose of including that material? The Jewish mystics say that the path of the mystic goes through religious observance. And this is something I always denied as a teenager. I was studying the, the, the mystical texts, you know, from all the different eras. And when I came to, you know, to this uh, sentence, it's actually, I think, from the Gemara, uh, I said, no, that's not true. And I had to be married and have children and, you know, be a little bit older um, to find out, oh, they're right. Because all those so-called rituals, you know, the whole Orthodox lifestyle gives an identity foundation. It forms yourself. And I really wanted to show that from different angles for a person who is born into this situation like in the Haridim uh, uh, environment uh, in Jerusalem and a person who comes from a totally different background and decides to change into this orthodox lifestyle and that was the reason for for me that I wanted to write about um, all this and to show how much meaning there is even in a s- single knot in in the tzitzis. Now, Brian, I have a question for you. I understand this is your first commission as a translator. That's right. How did this uh, project fall into your lap? Through an accident of nature, uh, I was on this, uh, you know, I'm normally a reporter, and I was on this fellowship with a bunch of environmental reporters to look at sustainable architecture and green buildings in Germany. And uh, fittingly enough, for a group of environmental reporters, we got stuck under the volcanic ash cloud in 2010 <laughs> for a week. And uh, when we got to the country, I had read this profile of Benjamin in Die Zeit in the Newsweekly, and it was a, sort of a story about him and his book. And I found it very interesting, and I just kind of filed it away until I got stuck in Berlin for a week. 
what turned out to be a whole week. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go look for that book and I'm going to go read it. And so I went and I got it and I sat in a coffee house and I read it and uh, I, I found it really riveting. And for some reason, even though I hadn't done any translating beyond some errands for friends from time to time and business proposals or whatever, I kept thinking about how would I deal with this linguistic problem? How would I translate this passage? And it turned out through a series of events when I got back to the States that I had the opportunity to make a bid for it and submit some chapters, samples. And uh, it all came together very quickly, and it was really a series of extremely lucky accidents. Wow. And, are and you... it is, uh, I'm really grateful <laughs> that it turned out this way because uh, I have to say I, I can read English good enough to, to say that he really caught the essence of the narrators. He he caught the sound of the voices. And I I didn't think that this is possible. Yeah. And I'm extremely happy about the translation. I want to get into your personal story, Benjamin. You were born in nineteen seventy in East Germany and you were raised in what has been described as, quote, an arch communist anti religious family, unquote. You became religious in your teens. What led you to take that step going so far as to create a new name for yourself? Well, this was actually when I was 16 or so. You know, a time in a person's life that's very well suited for doing things like this. And uh, later I had to live with it. No. (laughs) um, I mean, I really wanted to have a, a fresh start for myself. Were there any, did you have any role models of people who had taken that step to to become religious that you were following or who were just sort of uh, influencing you? No, that was actually the biggest problem uh, in the GDR, that you didn't have live role models you could get any orientation from. You had to explore it all on your own and it was a very difficult uh, way Fortunately, I was not alone from, you know, some point on. We were at least two or three young guys, so we could study together and, you know, celebrate Shabbos together. But uh, it was still very difficult because there was no observant religious life in the GDR. Um, It was in Rosh Hashanah, 1990, so one year after, uh, you know, the... The wall came down. Yeah, the wall came down, that I was invited to a conservative family uh, in West Berlin. And this was actually the very first time I witnessed a real, you know, Jewish holiday festive meal with all the blows and whistles and field fish and, uh, you know, candlelighting and... Uh, yeah, and the whole atmosphere. Uh, we didn't know that. It was all like um, we tried to practice something that we had never seen practiced some, somewhere else. Was it risky for you to be religious in that time before the wall came down? I mean, did people know that you were uh, dipping your toes into this other world, and did people respond negatively or respond at all? Actually, it was, but... We didn't know. We didn't want to know. And if we would have known, we wouldn't have cared about it. Um, We were young enough to be naive like this. 
on the other hand, at least me, I mean, I, I felt as a full-fledged writer at this time. Whether it was true or not, didn't matter. So um, rebellion was, you know, like on the agenda. This was uh, <laughs> like you have to, you had to, right? So we didn't feel any fear. I was naive, but fortunately it was like this. So there was no repercussion. It's not as though there were authorities, local authorities, who knew about this and said, you know, of stop yeah, it. Of course. Oh, there, they did. There, there is a file where my letters to the rabbi uh, are in, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and it could have developed into a direction that was not so nice, but we we didn't care about it, and uh, I still think that was the right way to handle the situation. Just to be clear about one thing, because I'm suddenly confused. Your family, anti-religious family, but they were Jewish. That's not so sure. Not so sure. Um, uh, it wouldn't have mattered, because it's from the um, my father's side. So for me, when I became religious, it was, it was clear I have to go through the conversion process anyway. On the other hand, this was, uh, it was totally difficult to delve into this family history on my father's side. That was actually my first novel was about, this uncertainty of the family history. Brian, I want to bring you into this conversation a little bit Please, uh, more. So. <laughs> and I understand that over the past few years, you yourself have begun digging into Judaism. You are not uh, by birth Jewish. You are a Catholic, I think. Is that right? Uh, or yeah, maybe I Latin. come from a family mostly of Boston Irish Catholic Americans with obviously enough, you know, one German grandfather who gave me this ragingly German last name <laughs> that I have, but he exerted very little cultural influence on the family. So really, um, the entire culture of my family was very much pre-Vatican II Boston Irish Catholic. So how did this uh, interest in Judaism uh, develop? I trace my discovery of it to Germany, interestingly, because I was an exchange student in West Germany in 1987, and um, it was a very interesting time on a lot of levels. It was a really profound experience in my life, not just for my learning of the language, but um, in many ways. And it was a time uh, when there was a great deal of education on the Nazi era and the Holocaust uh, really being institutionalized more in the educational system. And so uh, I got to see Jewish culture and Jews themselves treated much, very much as an abstraction, a loss in the society, a topic to be discussed. And it made me realize just how much Jewish culture and people were a living part of my life as an American. And it was just sort of something I noted at the time, and it was something I missed. And I guess that was why later in my life, when I was a college student and beyond, I got more interested in things of that nature. But knowing German also allowed me to start studying Yiddish. I kind of, in the 90s, I kind of fell in with that whole thing that happened. And I spent several summers at YIVO and here in New York studying Yiddish and got very into that for a while. And um, it's really been an almost 25-year process of, um, you know, first taking it from the angle of being in Germany, then getting into learning about the Eastern European Yiddish-speaking culture, which in order to understand that, you have to learn a great deal of cultural context, which requires you to develop some understanding of the religious traditions. But that process was very uh, 
was a profound one for me, but it took a long time for me to make the move from being interested in that culture. Even though intellectually I knew it was all rooted in the religion, it took me a long time to really uh, develop more of an interest in going to shul or um, thinking about whether I wanted that to be a part of my personal life. And are you actually undergoing a conversion process? Uh, I'm in the very early stages of that. Um, I didn't knew that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a journey of discovery here today. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, sorry. There's one thing I didn't mention oh, yeah, that I should ahead. mention. Yeah, go ahead, please. One thing that hasn't really come up explicitly that I really liked about the book is the way that it plays with the East German story. The book is ostensibly looking at identity and memory through this question of why people take memories of the Holocaust and the history and project their own suffering onto it or project it onto their own suffering, as the case may be. But the fact that this book takes it to another level and uses, assumes that the East German story and certain features of it are, are uh, familiar enough to all of us now, you know, the drama of the fall of the wall or even uh, the Jewish experience in East Germany, uh, that certain details are uh, have been internalized enough that someone might project their suffering onto that story. <laughs> Um, it was just something that uh, I found unexpected and, and, and fascinating, and it's one of my favorite things about the book personally. There's a lot more that we could talk about in terms of this book, in terms of uh, the narrator's adoption of identity, in terms of your own adoption of, of different identities or how our identities just change as we age and go through different experiences. We're going to leave it at that and encourage readers to read the book. And we want to thank both of you for joining us, Benjamin Stein, Brian Zumhagen. It's been a great pleasure to have you on Vox Tablet. Thank you. Benjamin Stein is a writer, publisher, and IT specialist. He's based in Munich. His new novel is called The Canvas. The English translation of The Canvas is by Brian Zumhagen, and it's out just now from Open Letter Books. Definitely read it. It's great. In other news, we have something exciting to share, which is that Tablet now has a mobile site. It's up and running. It looks terrific. You can check it out. You can get it on your smartphone or your iPad. And for those of you who have complained, and there have been a few at least, that you cannot stream Vox Tablet on your mobile device, well, now you can. It's super terrific. We're very excited about it. Vox Tablet on demand wherever you want it. Get it. Check it out. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. As always, we thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>